Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So last week, Pastor Marshall, we were basically halfway through the book of Hebrews. Last week, Pastor Marshall covered chapter 5. Now, if you weren't here last week or you were serving in another class I, 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 or like one of our classrooms down the hall, I highly suggest that you go back and listen to that, that uh, sermon because chapter 6 takes us a little bit of a detour. And so what we're going to talk about today is a, it's not disconnected. It's just a little bit different than what chapter 5 is. And then it picks back up in chapter 7. So it gives you a foundation of the high priestly role, Melchizedek and that guy, and who was that, and what Jesus fulfilled. All of that, it picks back up in chapter 7. So if you haven't listened to that, I highly suggest it so that you're prepared and you're not behind when Pastor Marshall comes back next week. For today, before we jump into chapter 6, though, we got to go backwards a little bit. So we're actually going to start in chapter 5, verse 11. But before we get there, we need to have a little bit of a contextual lesson here. We have to understand where we are in the time of history and who the writer is and who he's writing to because chapter 6 kind of highlights the community that he's dealing with. So we have to remember something that's very important because if we, don't, if we don't do this, we don't understand the context, we have the tendency to misinterpret and then misuse the text. We have to remember this. The Bible, as much as we would like it to be, it was not written to us. It was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. We are not the community that the writer of Hebrews wrote his letter to. There was a very specific group of people who were going through very specific things. And our responsibility is to examine the text and draw from it the wisdom that it's trying to teach us and then to apply it to the year 2023. Okay? That's what we're going to do today. Because if we start thinking that the Bible is written to us, we take away truths and ideas and thoughts that are not really there. Because this group of Christians were converts from Judaism, mostly. Now, I don't know who in here was Jewish and then you converted to Christianity, so I'm going to guess that 99-plus percent of us are not converts from Judaism. And they were facing persecution, likely from their family, their friends. They were being rejected. They were castaways. And they were struggling. Many of these people in his community, whoever he was writing to, were struggling with the desire and the temptation to return back to Judaism. That's why when you hear, like he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, about this, this concern about them drifting away, and he's building on these ideas of that Jesus is greater than all these different characters, that Jesus is the high priest, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the angels. There's a reason why he's doing that. He's doing that because they are concerned, he's concerned that there's a tickling argument happening in these people's ears and people are starting to say things like, hey, that Jesus guy, guess what? He really didn't rise from the dead. His disciples just took him out of the tomb and buried him someplace else. And if there's a Jesus guy, if he actually did exist, guess what? He's not really higher than the angels. He's not greater than Moses. He was just another, maybe a prophet who lived and then died. 
And so their faith was beginning to wane under pressure. That, that, that truth that they once accepted to believe to be true was now full of questions and doubt, and they were starting to slip away. And so this anchor that they believed was their anchor was no anchor at all. And many of them were drift, drifting away. So at the end of chapter 5, there's a bit of a transition, and it's connected to chapter 6, so we're going to start there. But it can be a little heavy, so hang with me. Beginning of 15 and the beginning of 6, I'm sorry, the end of 5 and the beginning of 6, it's a little heavy, but there is encouragement coming, so just bear with me, I promise. So Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to read 11 through 14. And about this, we have much to say. Pastor Marshall covered this last week again. About what? High priest, Melchizedek, all of that good stuff. But it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on, solid, on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, again, Pastor Marshall covered this last week. I'm just going to highlight it because, one, I don't know if you were here last week. Two, I don't know if you maybe went to the bathroom or something and you didn't catch this when he was preaching it. So i got to go backwards a little bit before we get into chapter 6 because they are connected. Notice the comparison here. There's milk and then solid food. There's those with and those without discernment. And the writer is describing is a mature person versus an immature person. A child versus a grown person, an adult. But notice he's not comparing an actual child to an actual adult. He's calling out people who think they're an adult, but they're really a child, spiritually. Immature-wise. I have children. i got three of them. I expect my children to act like children. My 10-year-old boy, I don't expect him to act like a 15-year-old. I don't want him to act like a 15-year-old yet. I'm not there yet. My daughter just turned 14 today, so I'm struggling, right? Um, But I also don't expect him to act like a 5-year-old. I want my 10-year-old son to act like a 10-year-old. That's what I want for him. And the writer here is saying, look, some of you are not growing. You're still drinking milk. It's time for you to grow up. You need to eat solid food. You need to stop thinking that that thing you're drinking, that's milk, is really solid food because it's not. And if the thing that you're drinking, that's like curdled milk. You don't want to be drinking that, right? Let's move on to solid food. Because this milk that you're drinking is making you unskilled in the word of righteousness. But notice what he uses as a comparison for the child and the adult. It's in the ability to discern between good and evil. Now that word, good and evil, it's an interesting phrase. It's used over 15 times, 50 times in the Old and the New Testament. I want to focus on it just a little bit. Because the most famous of these uses, maybe you're already thinking about it, comes from Genesis. 
chapters 1, 2, and 3. And here we see the first humans, Adam and Eve. And they're given a commandment by God that he has told them, be fruitful and multiply. He placed them in the garden. There's two trees, and he says there's two of them. One is the tree of life. You can eat of that one. You're fine. Just do that. The second one, though, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of it because why? You will surely die. Now, the word there for uh, good and evil in the Hebrew is the word tov and ra. I want to focus in on that one. I don't have a necessarily an issue with the translation. Translation's fine. It's more how we use this word evil, ra. Because what is evil? If you were to ask me, Lyle, what is evil in your time? I would probably start categorizing evil as the worst wickedness atrocities that I can think of. What would those be? The Holocaust. I can't think of something that's more evil and wicked in our time than the mass murdering of millions of people just because they were Jewish. The enslavement of people. I can't think of anything more putrid and wicked than thinking that you have the right to own another human being. I'm thinking of people who harm children. And because there's children in here, as adults, you know what I mean by harm. I'm thinking of people who abduct women and put them into slavery, modern slavery. This is what I think of as evil, but that's not how the Bible defines evil. This word ra, R-A, if you were to define it using the Hebrew, it means bad, just bad. Evil, yes. Wicked, no good. As an example, pertaining to which is not morally good, pure, or good according to a proper standard. That's how the Bible defines evil. And what was the proper standard? Well, for the Jewish person, it was what? The law. That was their standard. It's how they saw the world. It was literally the lens that they were supposed to see the world. For us, that proper standard is Jesus. So here's the point, and it's going to resonate through chapter 6. There's an implication, and I'm going to use this word implication a lot. I'm not doing it just because I can't come up with a better word. I want the word implication because I don't want you to think that what I'm about to say applies directly to you, and this is like determination, right? There's an implication here that if we do not begin to move from milk to solid food, moving from immaturity to maturity, we run the risk of misdefining what is good and evil. Because then what will happen if we can't define evil properly based on what the Bible says is evil, we will begin to sort of excuse certain practices and thoughts and ideas and character, actions as just, ah, they're not evil. They're just not something that I would do, so I'm going to just allow it to happen. That's just bad. No, the Bible says they are evil. Evil. All right, so let's Giving that as a context, that's Hebrews chapter 5. Let's jump into Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to read just the first three verses to start out. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying of the hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So there's a question or an underlying issue that the writer of Hebrews is addressing, and this is it. 
Why aren't people moving from immaturity to maturity? Why aren't there more teachers and less people drinking milk? Why is this? Now, Paul uses physical exercise several times throughout his letters, so please excuse me if I use a similar version of that here today. New Year's resolutions, we all have them. We wake up January 1st and we think it's a new year. It's just like another hour, but that's fine. It's a new year. We're going to start off this year better than how we ended the last. And a lot of people use, I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to start eating better. I'm going to go to the gym. And I go to the gym, I go to Premier, and I went on, like I think, like the first or second before everybody went back to school and work, and it was insanity. I've never seen that many people in the gym at that one time. Now, as a, as a comp, you know, this person who goes almost every day, I was like, okay, I just had, had grace for them. I was like, okay, I know, I know what this is going to be like, because I know, give it till February, mid-March, it's going to go back to normal. And they've actually done research on this, and they say about 50% of the people who start a diet regimen on January 1st will stop doing that thing by March. By March. Two months, they couldn't last. We start out strong, and we just lose our passion. Why is this? Why do we do this? Because people, these, these folks who started out the year so strong with so much passion and they were just, I'm going to do my thing, I'm going to get healthy, they conflated, they confused intensity with maturity. They thought cutting out every type of food that brought them any amount of joy in life was going to get them the desired result. They're going to go from doing nothing and sitting on the couch every single day to going to the gym five to seven days a week, and they thought that was going to work. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no plan. They just think, I'm going to eat salad every single day, and I'm going to work my butt off, and I'm going to have success. And then a couple of months later, they are completely just broken, and they're tired, and they say, it's not working. The scale's not moving. I don't feel any better. I'm just tired and hurting, so I'm done. What they didn't realize is consistency and steadfastness is greater than a quick fix. So let's go back to our question. Why aren't people moving from immaturity to maturity? Because exercise is hard. It's hard, man. Like, you get tired and your feet hurt and your back hurts. Dieting, man, it's hard. You want to eat pizza and eating things that are not healthy, you know, are healthy for you. It's not as fun as eating other foods. Man, it's hard. Sacrifice is hard. Breaking old bad habits is hard. Consistency, being consistent, waking up every single day no matter what happened the day before and being consistent is hard. Change is not easy. And admitting, admitting that maybe you don't know what you're doing is hard. It's so much easier to just not go to the gym, right? It's just easier. But that's not how a mature Christian thinks. That type of thinking will keep you drinking milk. And the writer is warning us, no, we have to go on to greater things. If you want to move from immaturity to maturity, it's going to take some sacrifice. The old, that's who I am, that don't work. Mm -mm, That's not going to work. That's immaturity. Or, I'm just doing my best, brother. Are you? Is it really your best? That's immaturity. No, the writer says we have to train constantly. But how do muscles grow? Going back to that now, how do muscles grow? 
you have to break it down. It has to literally bleed under your skin, and then you have to let it heal. And then you have to do that again over and over and over, week after week after week after week. And when that kind of starts getting normal, you have to do something different and change it up. You have to, if you want to build spiritual muscles, J.I., uh, let me go, hold on for just a minute. This is a great quote from J.I. Packer. Spiritual growth cannot be measured, only tested. So what does this mean? If you only go to the gym once a week, that's not going to give you the desired results that you're looking for. I can guarantee you that. If coming to church once a week, and that's all the Jesus you get, man, that's not going to give you the desired results that you're seeking. If you read your Bible only during this sermon or whatever Pastor Marshall's teaching on Sundays, and that's the only Bible you get Monday through Saturday or Sunday, man, it's not going to give you the desired results you're looking for. The only time you pray is over your food. That's not, that's not, that's not it. It's not going to give you maturity in Christ. It means you have to tear that, that spiritual muscle apart, but then you have to let it heal and do that over and over and over again. Because again, the Christian, the mature Christian is one who constantly trains. They desire community. They actually want community with other believers. They seek accountability with other believers. And they know this. Talk to a, a mature Christian who's been around a while. They know by, by doing that, they will hone their skill and their ability to, to, to discern between good and evil. What's wise and unwise. Again, the implication here is there a warning for the people, maybe some of us sitting here today, who are living off of milk and they think it's solid food. There are some of us who are willfully, I mean like, like stubbornly, not moving on to the, or from the elemental things of Christ. Folks who are immature, but they're grown. And like a child, that immaturity is leaving them vulnerable. My son didn't wake up feeling great today. He's fine. But he said, Dad, can I stay home during church? My wife is driving down to Tampa for my daughter's birthday. And I said, I can't leave you alone for five hours. You're a child. There's no way I'm going to let that happen. Now, an hour, I, we, we've got parameters. But five, that's not happening. He's vulnerable. But what is the writer here telling us that we're vulnerable of if we don't move on from immaturity? Well, let's find out. Verse 4 through 8. This is where it gets fun. If you ever read your Bible, Hebrews 6. About to get really fun. Okay, so it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have fallen away to restore them once again to repentance, since they are what? Crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near and near to being cursed. And it's at the end it will be burned. Oh boy. Let's break that down. There's a couple of different ways you can interpret that verse. Uh, it's 2023 and they've been debating this verse for like the last, I don't know, give or take 2,000 years. 
So I'm not going to be the guy that settles this for once and for all, the argument of how to interpret these verses today. I'm going to give you the main viewpoints on it. I'll give you what I think, and then we'll go from there. The writer could be describing in those verses someone who repented, had been baptized, they showed an outward expression of their face, faith, then they backslid, they fell away, they were saved, but then they lost their salvation. The writer could also be describing a person who merely just tasted and experienced the things of God, but never really truly repented. So yeah, sure, they showed some outward expressions of faith, but they had no roots, so they fell away. Therefore, they weren't really ever saved to begin with. Okay, now if you fall into one of those two camps, perfectly fine. I'm not going to be here today to debate that topic. I tend to fall closer to the second option. I'll tell you why. I believe the writer is describing a person who never really truly came to saving faith. They've tasted, they've experienced, but their heart was never fully given over to Christ. They heard the gospel message, and then they made a decision, they processed it, and Jesus says they weighed, they counted the cost, and they said, I don't want it. I reject Christ. Because the writer says, in the case of. It's impossible for in the case of those. Look, he's not speaking in general terms to his listeners. There's a very specific group of people who have, again, heard the gospel, they've processed it, And the thorns and the thistles grew around them and it choked their life out. And they've rejected Jesus' mind, body, and soul. That's why he says you can't come back from that. You can't bring someone back to a double repentance. So again, what wisdom then can we take from that text and apply to our lives in the year 2023? While you may not be tempted to return to Judaism, probably none of us are here that way, But we can be tempted to return to a former life, a a former pre-enlightened self. This is why the discussion on immature and mature was so important, that milk, solid food. The person above was vulnerable because they allowed themselves to be pulled away from the truth because of immaturity. They allowed themselves to get caught up in clever arguments where someone just knew a little bit more about the subject than they did. That's what an expert is. An expert is the smartest person in the room on that subject. And then that person brings just a little bit of truth they hadn't really thought about, they hadn't really processed, not really thought about it. And then that's when, this, when Satan's like, boom, gotcha. I'm going to plant little seeds of doubt and distrust in your heart. And he did it just like this. Hey, Eve, if you eat of the tree, you won't die. You'll just be like God. Ooh, that little seed. What was the things that Adam and Eve lacked? Wisdom and fear. What's the beginning of wisdom? Fear. And that same offer that Satan made to Adam and Eve has been made a trillion times over through the course of human history. But each generation just has a different variation of that same deception, that same lie. And I'll use one that's very dangerous. It's kind of, I mean, you'll probably all agree with me, but this is kind of like preaching to the choir. But these are two main issues here that are facing this generation, your kids, you today, all of us in this room. It's identity and marriage. Now, the seed of doubt, it looks like this. They'll say someone comes along to an immature person, an immature Christian, they'll say things like this. Yo, it doesn't matter what the Bible says about identity. 
That book is like 6,000 years old. It's been manipulated so many times over the course of human history, it's not even true. Let me give you a different way to think about identity. And if you have kids in high school or middle school, I guarantee you that is what they're being told. Because my daughter's in middle school, I can guarantee it. It also kind of sounds like this. It doesn't matter what the Bible says about marriage. It's archaic. That's just the patriarchy. Let me tell you what like modern interpretation, a modern idea of what marriage should be. And what happens if you're stuck in immaturity, if you haven't moved on from the elemental things of Christ, and you hear that, and then you're like, oh, I haven't thought about that. I'm gonna, that's a new concept. Let me pull on that thread. And you start pulling on it alone, then Satan's gonna put in some discontent, mistrust, distrust, and doubt. And what's gonna grow? It ain't gonna be fruit. It's going to be weeds. Remember the parable of the four soils? There's four of them. The word, the seed is dropped. Some of the seed falls on good soil and it springs up and produces fruit, good for the harvest. But the other three, (laughs) not such a great situation for them. The second one, it falls on good, kind of good soil, but it has no roots. It springs up, there's no roots, and it falls away. Another seed falls, and it gets caught up in the thorns and the thistles, and it what? It falls away. And then another one falls on the path, and it gets eaten up by the sun and birds. Only one of them produced a mature fruit. And any good gardener, any good gardener will know the difference between a weed and the thing that you're trying to grow. So a good gardener, a mature Christian, knows if you don't pull the weeds from the thing you're trying to grow, what's going to happen? It's going to get choked out. They'll start taking on more sunlight, and eventually they're going to fall away. So what happens if this immature Christian attempts to pull on that thread alone? Well, when persecution comes, and it's coming, and you're faced with some new truth you hadn't thought through and thought about, and you can't tell the difference between weeds and actual truth, or you're facing the same vulnerability, the same potential path that the writer is speaking to the guy above, falling away. Look, you don't have to walk the path alone, though. The beauty of the body of Christ is that there's no lone wolves. You don't have to die alone. Yes, the church has a mission to be ambassadors to Christ to the world, but it's also a place where Christians can come together regardless of your immaturity or maturity and grow together in their faith. Because our goal as a church, as a body, is to grow together. But we have to realize something. Every single one of us in this room is on some spectrum of maturity. Some of us are immature in our faith. We're young. We're walking through this thing. Some of us are more mature, but we're still kind of immature. And once we realize that we're all walking down this path together, well, that's the body of Christ. That's the hands and feet, right? So let's pick up in verse 9, because that's the heavy stuff. Let's pick up in verse 9 for a little bit of encouragement. Verse 9, though we speak of these things in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel better of I'm sorry, we, we, uh, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So in other words, 
What we just talked about really wasn't a salvation topic. It was a maturity issue. But you're here, sitting here today. You're sitting here. You're listening. So we have confidence and we have a hope that you're not going to fall into those similar traps. But honestly, right, the issue isn't that you're immature. Because, again, all of us are immature in some way. There's this quote. I can't remember who it's from. I'm probably going to butcher it. But it says that the your future self will always look at your past self as immature. I look back at my life when I was 30, 25 years old, I'm 41 in two weeks, and I was like, oh my God, that guy, oh, how did you ever make it out alive? And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm 41 now, what, my, what is my 50-year-old self going to think about my 41-year-old self? We all are on this path of immaturity or maturity. <laughs> it's all going to be all right. So the issue isn't necessarily that you're immature. It's the staying immature. It's the staying still. That's the issue. You've got to grow. So in verse 10, he picks up and he says, For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now I want to focus in on those two lines, the full assurance of hope and then through faith and patience inherit the promise. Assurance and patience don't seem like they go together, do they? If I'm assured of something, why do I need to have patience? If somebody says, hey, hey well, I'm going to give you $10 after church. Okay. If I'm assured that that is true, that that person didn't just lie to me, then I'm not going to be anxious about whether or not I'm going to get $10 at the end of church. So how can these two seemingly contradictory things apply to salvation? Because he just said those things weren't about salvation, so he's moving on in the discussion. How can they live at the exact same time. How can salvation be applied to the here and now, but for those who persevere, who endure to the end? How can that be true? Well, like any good pastor, he gives you the scriptural reference in the next verse or next section. So we're going to read 13 through 16. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, there's this patiently again, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is the final confirmation. Now that's an Old Testament database reference to the promise God made to Abraham in three different uh, chapters in Genesis, chapter 12, 15, and 17. And in chapter 17, 7 through 8, this is God promising a covenant to Abraham. He says this, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. So between Abraham and all the generations after him will be an everlasting covenant. To be God to you, and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, the, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, do you see the matter-of-factness in which God speaks to Abraham? 
There are no terms. There were no conditions. It was simply as God's promise to Abraham that I'm going to do this thing. But with assurance. So God, Abraham believed and it was accredited to him as righteousness, right? And then with full assurance, there's a guarantee of promise. There's also waiting. Because Abraham got to see a partial fulfillment of that promise in his son Isaac. It was future generations that came after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes that got to see the fulfillment of the promise. Because we see, again, the 12 tribes and then the building of Israel and the conquest. You get good kings and bad kings. You've got Saul and David, and God then reaffirms his covenant with David. And then his son Solomon, he says, look, through your throne, I'm going to build an everlasting throne. Then there's an exile, two of them. There's a burning of the temple, a rebuilding of a temple, and then 400 years of silence, and then they got Jesus. Millions of people, millions and millions of people lived and died waiting on the promise to be fulfilled. So if we go back to the discussion we were just having, how can salvation be for the here and now, but also for those who persevere to the end? Because that's how God's been working since the foundations of the world. Today before each and every single one of us is an offer of salvation. There's a guarantee, there's a covenant between you and God that was secured not by your acts, but by the blood of Jesus and him alone. But you have to endure. You have to persevere. The Bible is clear. There's an offer of salvation. And for those who accept it, your salvation's in the here and now. Matthew 10, 22. I'm going to go through a bunch of scripture here. 10, 22. And they will be hated for my namesake. This is Jesus talking. But for those who endure to the end will be saved. Matter of factness, will be saved. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not by your own doing. It's a gift from God. Titus 3, 5. He saved us. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. But the Bible is also clear. I just read a verse. Maybe you caught it. Matthew 10.22, and you will be hated for your name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. James 1.12, blessed is the man who is, remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, the gospel I preached to you, which you received in the one that you stand by, which you are being saved. That's a little bit of a different context. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Believed in vain person who believed in vain, the immature person who just kept drinking milk. They were missing something. What was that person that the writer speaks above that can't, you know, it was impossible to come back to their repentance? What was that person missing? We're going to find out. I'm kind of, kind of closing here. Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So by that, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. 
We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Remember I told you uh, five and six are connected here to seven. Remember what we talked about earlier. There are people, the listeners, the writer is speaking to specifically, who are contemplating, struggling with turning, returning to Judaism and had maybe even watched some of their loved ones reject Jesus as their Messiah and return to dead works through the law. And the writer here is saying, look, I know the temptation is before you. I know it can be hard. But like our forefathers who had to wait for a promise, we have to cling to the truth that God cannot lie. And if he can't lie, and his word is always true, that means we have to have patience while we cling to the hope that we have in Jesus. A hope that tells us that Jesus crossed over from our space to God's space. Because the temple, the tabernacle, was divided by a veil. In the front, or front part of the court, there was an area that any priest could go in, in his given time, and change out the showbread, refill the oil for the lampstand, and then re- replenish the incense. But only the high priest could cross over the veil and into the Holy of Holies, and only then but once a year. And what the writer is saying is that Jesus, as a forerunner, is our high priest, and he crossed through the veil once for all. That veil that while he was on the cross got ripped and torn in two. So that now God's space and man's space is one space. And that's why we are temples, because we have the living Holy Spirit living inside of us. And the writer makes a, a claim here that he's saying, listen, If your anchor, if the anchor of your soul is not in Jesus, you are vulnerable. If your anchor, the thing that keeps you from drifting away, as chapter 2, verse 1 talks about, if the anchor of your soul is not Jesus, you are a threat to drifting away. If your anchor is your family, and I love my family, I love my wife above anything else, but it's not my anchor. My health, as healthy as I can try to be, tomorrow, it could all change. And if my anchor isn't Jesus, there's going to be a seed of discontent and, 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 di- and doubting of God will grow and produce weeds in my life. Amen. Look, that job that you have that supplies your family with food on the table, guys, I'm a sole bread winner of my family. I get the pressures. It is not your anchor. Your position, your title, the thing that you hold so closely to you, your identity as a person, as a man, it's not your anchor. That's not. That's just how you put food on the table. This church, now that's a big one for a lot of us in here. Pastor Marshall's not here. He's not your anchor. Red Hills is not your anchor. I love this church. I absolutely love this church. I can't imagine going anywhere else. But it's not my anchor. 
If you've been in church long enough, you know the fallibility of man. We are here one day and gone tomorrow, but the only thing that will last you through the storms, the only thing that will last through the persecution, the only thing that will keep you through in the health crisis, family crisis, inflation, loss of jobs, whatever it is, presidents come and go, governments rise and fall, the only thing that remains true one day, all day, every day is Jesus. And if he's not your anchor, you're going to fall away. So, my beloved, we hope for better things. You're here today. There's an offer before you. Who is your anchor? What is the anchor of your soul? Now, you don't have to worry about falling away if your anchor is Jesus. If you're moving from immaturity to maturity, you don't have to worry about falling away. If you're in community with other believers, you don't have to fall, worry about falling away. We have community groups in our church, y'all, and a good three or four of them, if not more, are not full. Why is that? There's 250 people sitting before me, and our community groups are not full. I don't, I don't get that. Why is that? Look, if you're in community with other believers, if you're, you're just hanging out, asking questions, talking, being in community. Man, I love community groups because we come together, we eat some food, and we spend some time in the Word of God, and we just get to know each other. It's a beautiful time. Look, if your hope is set on Jesus alone, you're not going to drift away. This is my encouragement. So keep maturing. Keep moving. Keep growing. Tear down those spiritual muscles and let them heal. Ask questions, man. I love questions. Man, be the person that goes, you know what? I just read something and I don't know what it means. That's perfectly fine. There is a bunch of people in this church who would love to answer that question for you. There's a Bible channel on Slack just for that purpose. So let's move on from the elemental things of Christ. Let's grow, let's mature, and let's hold fast to the hope that's set before us in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.